when it comes to talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, we approach one of the most important subjects in the whole of Scripture. I say this because if you're watching online or if you sit here this morning as a born-again Christian, you know that we cannot live a moment in faithfulness to Christ in our own doing. As Christians, we're desperately dependent on the Spirit of God, not just at the time of our conversion, but for every second of every day. We're at a time where much is incorrectly attributed to the Holy Spirit, or in some cases, the Holy Spirit is forgotten about altogether. We live in an age, don't we? An instant age. The art of waiting patiently for something, even for something big, important or exciting, has been largely lost. Nowadays, if you want to watch the latest movie, you don't have to go down to the local shop to buy the DVD. Now, within a click or two of a remote control, you can have it instantly playing through your TV at home. The invention of microwaves means that meals that used to take hours can now be ready in minutes. We live in an on-demand, give-it-to-me-now world which does not like to wait or to be told to wait, even if it's for something good. But imagine being told by Jesus for any day now. You're about to be baptised by the Holy Spirit, but for now, all you have to do is wait. That's what Jesus tells the apostles in Acts chapter 1, in verse 4. Jesus says, while staying with them, that's his followers, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This, this you may remember is the last promise Jesus made before returning to the right hand of the Father that David spoke about last week. The promise that the, the Spirit of God, God's power, God's Holy Spirit, the third person of our triune God, God himself was about to come from heaven, resulting in something awesome. The crucial aspect of God's redemptive plan as he came to apply the work of what Christ achieved through his life, death and resurrection to believers. Can you imagine what the following 10 days would have felt like. Jesus, who gave these apostles front row seats as he performed miracle after miracle, proving himself beyond doubt to be the Son of God, defeated death, and now he tells them that the time is near. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait. It's coming. Something huge is about to happen. The anticipation must have been incredible because they knew that this was no small thing that was about to happen. Jesus told them back in John chapter 16 that it was to their benefit that he went away and sent the Holy Spirit to them. Let's turn there now. John chapter 16 verse 7. It's page 902 in the church Bible. 
That's John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What may have been unclear to the apostles when they first heard this is about to become a lived experience. As we go to Acts chapter 2 in a few moments, we're going back in time nearly 2,000 years to a rented upper room in a packed Jerusalem where the apostles were gathered in the expectation of celebrating this special Jewish holiday. Please turn with me to our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Acts chapter 2, it's in on page 909 of the church bible acts chapter 2 verse 1 when the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly they there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? So verse 1, we're told in our text that this was the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a special day of celebration in the Jewish calendar. I guess the closest thing that we'd have to recognise on the Western calendar would be what the Americans have with Thanksgiving. It's a day celebrated every year, also known as the Feast of Harvest or the Ingathering. It's also known as the, the Feast of Weeks. It's called this because it was a festival that happens after a week of weeks since the Passover. If you're good at maths, a week of weeks is 49 days, and Pentecost was the day after that, making it the 50th day. It's a day where the Jewish people got together to thank God for the recent harvest. You see, they do this, recognising God's sovereign hand in the provision of their crops. This is the time when the offering of the, the first fruits was made that we see in Leviticus chapter 23. 
It's likely that all of the 120 believers mentioned in Acts chapter 1 would have been present in the upper room at this time. I say that because this wasn't a casual event on the calendar that people were blasé about attending. All Hebrew males were expected to celebrate it in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, and these men would have wanted to. Devout men from every nation making the pilgrimage from every land where the Jews had been dispersed to over the years. Jews that were Parthians, including the Medes that lived in modern-day Iran. Residents from Mesopotamia, Jews from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Cretans and Jews from Greece, as well as a number of Jews that came from Rome. Jerusalem would have been packed the atmosphere electric, and amongst all this public activity, we have the apostles and the, the first followers of Jesus that were told to wait, sat here fellowshipping in a privately rented room, anticipating an evening making the feast of weeks. So that's why in verse 1 that they were all together in one place. And then suddenly, verse 2, suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Note the language, suddenly. This clues us into the dramatic nature of this loud noise like a mighty rushing wind which entered and filled the entire house where they were sitting. This was unmistakable. This wasn't a case of as someone left a window open somewhere downstairs. Undeniable power from heaven. The moment that they'd been waiting in Jerusalem for was finally here. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. We can imagine this, can't we? There's nothing quite like a powerful storm. Or the thunder and lightning that we've had over the last few nights to quicken us. To make us consider the power of God. And that's when it's explainable and outside. But here it's different. We see the sound of a, a mighty rushing wind. A tornado-like sound that developed from within the four walls of the house and filled it. There wouldn't have been a person present that did not recognise that this was the Holy Spirit. The helper that they were anticipating. And even though they knew that the Spirit was coming, they were still surprised. The same, of course, will be true when the Lord Jesus returns. We know, don't we? That the Lord is coming back and we're told that this too will be sudden. Let me ask you this morning, are you ready to meet him? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you resting securely in him or have you been putting that off? Thinking that you've got all the time in the world, forgetting that he could come suddenly. It's something I'd urge you to consider. We must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that we do not expect. And it's here. As the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost that is being poured out on each of these believers, filling them commissioning them with the ability to speak new languages as the Spirit gives them utterance. That's what's happening here in verse 3. The word tongues means languages. Verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And why? Well, their mission was about to become that of evangelism. These now Spirit-filled believers were about to depart Jerusalem. They were to be led by the Spirit in spreading out across every nation, taking the message of salvation to every land. The ability to be able to speak in the languages of the, the places they were being sent was essential. How else would the people understand them? Remember Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So to be able to speak in the language of those nations was crucial, and it was also a sign of validation. Think about it in our context, practically speaking. What good would it be for us to have a, a visiting speaker next Sunday that could only speak Korean? Very few, if any of us, would be able to understand the word that they said. And not only did the, the people receiving the gospel need to understand what was being said, they also needed to know that it was true. As the Holy Spirit gave the believers new languages, new tongues to speak, he also poured out unique gifts of the Spirit to be used as sign gifts to authenticate what they were saying was from God. Just like we witnessed in the miracles that Jesus performed throughout his earthly ministry that acted as a proof of who he was. This was an authenticating evidence that the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ was and is true. These sign gifts for tongues, for healings, they were to separate the frauds from those that were truly sent. It was a validating sign to give the messengers and their message credibility. And why was this necessary, you might be thinking? Well, these were unique messengers, weren't they, at a time in history when the canon of Scripture was not yet complete. They were yet to have the 27 books of the New Testament. And you can just imagine, can't you? The story of Jesus and the retelling of his teachings, his death, his resurrection, would have been the talk of the town. But just like anything that's popular, people begin to, to jump on the bandwagon and to come up with their own full stories and accounts. It's the same if you study how the canon of Scripture came together. You'll find out that there were many counterfeit gospel accounts. There were fake gospels, gospels forged in the names of Thomas, Judas, James, Andrew, and many more. You'd have had all sorts of people going around proclaiming another gospel. Not that there is another, of course. People like the Judaizers, like we've been learning about on Sunday evenings, adding bits to the gospel. Ah, yes, they say, you're saved by faith in Christ, but then you have to be circumcised. Wolves were popping up everywhere with counterfeit stories and counterfeit gospels, just like we were warned, and they, that they would in scripture. These sign gifts were to separate, to validate, to shine a light upon them and say that these men and their message can be trusted. Their message, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation 
of sins. And of course, we still have wolves today, these false teachers, but there is, isn't there a difference? Today we have the closed canon of scripture, which is why we are encouraged to always have our Bibles in our hands, testing and measuring everything that we hear. It's the reason why we do not rely on whoever is preaching to perform some sort of miracle beforehand today. What's happening in Acts 2 was a unique point in history. So let's look at some examples of where sign gifts go hand in hand with the gospel. Turn to page 916 in your church Bible if you can. That's Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Then turn over to Acts 9 verse 40. That's page 918 in the church Bible. Acts 9 verse 40. Peter got down on his knees and prayed, turning towards the dead woman. And he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. It's the same model taught by Jesus through his ministry. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The tongue spoken of in our passage today is a known language and the sign gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit were for a set purpose. Both, both we can see are clearly linked to the unleashing of the Great Commission and to act as a confirmation that the Gentiles had received the Spirit too. You can read that maybe in Acts chapter 10 this afternoon. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. In fact, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Back then in the first century, they did not have the complete Bible. Hence the need for these gifts at that time. Go back to our passage, Acts chapter 2 from verse 5. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we can hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling of our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Can you imagine? What a scene to behold. It's possibly an oversteer away from the excesses of which is falsely attributed to the Holy Spirit. Many believers today are unaware or maybe even ignorant to the true work of the Spirit. In the year 1660, Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin said that there's a general omission or even a failure in not giving the Holy Spirit the glory that is due to his person and for his great work of salvation in us. Insomuch that we have often in our hearts almost forgotten the third person. George Smeaton in 1880 on his work on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit said, much of what has been written about the Holy Spirit for the most part has been sadly inadequate and erroneous in character. Much dross has been mingled with gold, mixed with a fearful amount of unscriptural nonsense, pointing towards a generation that will think that their own willpower is sufficient to enable them to decide for Christ. How offensive to think that we can work without the very power that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. How they should drive us to our knees in prayer to know better and to trust more in a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit. As Sinclair Ferguson wrote, Today it's not normative that we receive the Holy Spirit so that we can speak in tongues or that we may be prophets or that we may cure the sick or work miracles. Yet the Holy Spirit is given to us for a better use. Christians are recipients of the Holy Spirit so that the one tongue that we do have will confess that Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit is very much still at work today in 2022. For those here that are born-again Christians, know and have experienced his life-giving work. For all that Christ achieved through his perfect life, death and resurrection is credited to you through the working of the Spirit. We can see, can't we? This is why Jesus said it's to the advantage of believers that he go back to the right hand of the Father and to send the helper. The Holy Spirit comes and applies all of these promises to you if you are in Christ. Believers receive new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith and repentance in Christ. John chapter 3 verse 5 and 8. We are baptised into the body of Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. The Holy Spirit regenerates and renews the believer, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We are permanently and eternally secure by the seal of a promise of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 4.30. The Holy Spirit sanctifies and makes believers more like Christ through the conviction of sin and the giving of new affections and through trials and through blessings. For those in Christ, he is our helper, our comforter, our teacher. He intercedes for us when we do not know what or how to pray, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And lastly, but not by any means complete in a full list of the work 
of the Spirit. Believers are filled with the Spirit and commissioned to live a life for Christ, to be salt and light and to go and proclaim the good news to everyone. This can maybe be best summed up by James Smith, who was a predecessor of Charles Spurgeon at New Park Street Chapel in London. He wrote, I love to meditate on the work of the Holy Spirit, from whom we receive such great and invaluable blessings, and to whom we are so much indebted. To him I feel that I am indebted for every good thought, for every good work, How wonderful his patience, that he should bear with me so long, and how wonderful his loving kindness. For it was the Holy Spirit who quickened me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, imparting a new life, infusing new thoughts, and producing new desires in my soul. Having quickened me, he conquered me, subduing the enmity of my heart, the rebellion of my will, the worldliness of my affections, and bringing every thought into subjection to the obedience of Christ. And having quickened and conquered me, he comforted me, assuring me of a saving interest in the love of God, the perfect work of Jesus, the precious promises of the word, and the eternal rest which remains for the people of God having quickened, conquered and comforted me. He sanctified me by separating me from the world and setting me apart for my Redeemer's glory and praise. And as my sanctifier, he became my guide, leading me into the truth, conducting me out of the paths of danger and directing me into the everlasting way. Not only my guide, but he came, became my guard, preserving me from danger, protecting me from foes, and becoming a wall of fire around me. Whenever I wander, he reproves me. When I willfully go astray, he corrects me and makes me smart for my folly. The work that he began so long ago, he carries on, nor will he withdraw his hand from it until it is perfected and I am fully fitted for glory. How wonderful is that? If you're sitting here today or listening online and you're not a born-again Christian, then all that I have said today is foreign to you. You do not have the Holy Spirit of which I just described. This is an alien concept to which you are dangerously on the outside of. For as long as Christ remains outside of you, you are separated from him. All that Jesus has suffered and done for the salvation of sinners remains useless and of no value to you. It is in the Lord Jesus and through the Holy Spirit that the blessings of salvation become ours and it is only by the Spirit that we are in Christ. What does this practically mean for you this morning if you're not a Christian? It means that one day, either by Jesus returning suddenly or by you breathing your last breath, you will indeed meet God as judge. And if you're not a true Christian, it means that you have rejected the only possible way to be saved, which is by grace through faith in Christ. You're not going to be able to talk yourself out of the guilt of your sins or negotiate with God based on any good deeds 
that you think you have done. God knows how much we have all sinned and he paid the highest possible price to pay every single part of that debt. His son on a cross, a perfect man, the son of God, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of all those that are his. Come to him today. Seek him whilst he can still be found. Let's pray.